So we're happy with these levels. I am. I'm more than happy with these levels. Are you sure? Well, I'm eating a mint, so I can't really. Sorry, do you want to stop until you finish your fucking mint? Can I finish the mint? Yes. Let me know when you're done. It's a tree board peppermint soft mint. Other mints are available. I don't fucking want to know about that. I want to know when you're done. I'm fucking chewing as fast as I can. <sighs> I won't be long. Oh, it's stuck in my teeth. Stuck in your teeth? Yeah. Do you want some, do you want some floss? I'll sort it out with this beer. Yeah. Beer. Beer. <laughs> Howdy, everyone. Welcome to another podcast from us two here at A Bloody Mess, the badly researched true crime podcast. Now, um, this is yeah another episode. We're going to stop numbering our episodes because we lose count. We don't know when what's coming out this weekend. Pretty we're much. gonna we're gonna record four episodes this weekend. Yep. Hopefully, so we don't know when they're coming out. Um, but this is a, if this is your first ever episode, this is probably a good one to start with because although we haven't recorded, I've got a good feeling about this one, James. Yeah, I'm, I'm fucking good feeling <clears> about it. I'm not sure. I'm going to withhold judgment for now. Well, you just don't take part. I'll do it all. Okay. Um. So yeah, it's right about now I should be introducing my usual co-host and my good, good friend, the bearded magician, it's James. How are you, James? Also, I can join in now, can I? Yes, you can join oh, in. Okay, thank you. I'm, I'm mint. I, the mint is finished. I'm very well, thank you. Good, good. What are you drinking tonight? I'm on the Red Stripe. Red I'm, stripe. I'm pretending I'm at a gig. We've already been in the pub and had a couple pints. Yeah, I'm very good. I, we're now recording in Chen's flat. I had got the train up yesterday. I fully rested. I read the Satanic Bible all the way up. Yep. No one sat next to me at all, which was the intended <laughs> plan. And we also got drunk last night. Watched last podcast on the left live stream. Yeah, it was good. It was good. Yeah, everything's we're ready to go and we're fully prepared. Yeah. So without further ado, adieu, 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 adieu. Let's get into it. Ooh, into music. There's been a murder of podcasts. A bloody mess. So, today's podcast, we will be focusing around the life and crimes of an English serial killer. (gasps) And probably the most famous necrophile until James gets caught. I'm alright for now. A man named John fucking... Christy. That is actually his middle name. That is. So let's get down to business, said Christy to the corpse. That's too soon. Sorry, too soon. Oh, they don't know the story yet. So, with a father named Ernest Christy and a mother named Mary Hannah, Hannah Halliday, John was born as John Reginald Halliday Christy on April 8th, 1899, <clears throat> in a place called Halifax in England. In where? We're starting this pish already. Yeah. Halifax in England. Well, did you know that Halifax is the capital of Nova Scotia? It hosts the largest population uh, east of Quebec City. 403,000 people at last count. I'm pretty sure, James, that Nova Scotia is in Canada. Yes, correct. Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. What? Why why are you talking about Canada? Because he's from Halifax. Halifax in England. Oh, shit. No. Continue. The public gardens on Spring Garden Road in Halifax, Canada, are a 17-acre oasis containing fountains, rare flowers, trees, and a beautiful red gazebo. The old town clock, a famous landmark, has been keeping time in Canada since 1803. Point Pleasant Park, a 77-hectare park and one of the city's best, is located on the southern tip of the Halifax Peninsula, only two and a half kilometres from downtown. Remember, we're referring to the distance as kilometres because we're not in fucking England. <laughs> Halifax rents this site from the British government for 10 cents a year and has a 999-year lease, similar to the Guinness Brewery at St James's Gate in Dublin. Really? Yeah, they they have a, they've uh, had a crazy long lease. That's, a, that's mad. Like, yeah. they leased Hong Kong. Uh, Did they do that? I don't know. I don't know. They Who, just kind of took it, didn't they? They took it like they took Taiwan or Taipei, one of the two, I can't remember. Taipei is the capital of Taiwan. Is it? Yeah. So it's the, the same thing. Yeah. They all look the same. Yeah. What? Exactly. What? Who? So, when John Christie was born at the time, no one would have um, been able to imagine the vile and disgusting acts that this child would go on to do during his time on Earth. Mm-hmm. So starting with John's father will give you an idea of his upbringing. 
Ernest and Christine worked in a carpet factory as a designer and was known for being a cold, cold man and was never really known for showing emotion. See, I was thinking about it. She said he was known for being a cold, cold man. I thought the reason for this was because factories are quite cold because they've always got the big shutter doors open. Yeah. It's like lorries in and out. I don't think that's why. That's, that's not what I meant. I, oh. I think I meant emotionally. I didn't write the book, um, so I don't know. Okay. But right. I think it meant emotionally. Okay. But I work in a factory... And it is cold. Yeah. It is cold at times. So I'm not wrong. No, you're not wrong I'm at all. I'm just not right. Um, the book goes on to explain that he was uncommunicative with other people, which um, to me is a nice way of saying he had no mates. Yeah. He was a very strict man who ruled with an iron fist, not in a good way like the TV show Iron Fists, where he's a good guy. It, to be fair, Ernest just sounds like a bit of a prick. To he does honest. sound like a bit of a prick. Yeah. You ever seen Iron Fist? No. Season two was quite good when they cancelled it. Well, so it wasn't good then. Well, I liked it, but I've got a shit taste. Yeah. All Ernest's children's bad behaviour would be met with violent punishments, which was probably more common back in those days. In all, there would be seven children in the Christie family. All of them, apart from John, were females. See, <clears throat> now you've mentioned uh, like the violent punishments, and this more hands-on approach to parenting was quite common back in the day, as were large families, especially in Halifax, Nova Scotia, <laughs> where there are more pubs per capita than any other Canadian city. And we all know how fun it is to get home from the pub, absolutely steaming, punch your kids, and put a baby in your wife. <laughs> I don't think that's fun at all. Um, is that all your facts? Yeah, for so, now. For now. Coming, coming from a female-dominated household, and with a very overprotective mother, and really led John to have self-esteem issues. He was also referred to as a bit of a queer lad. And while growing up, he was known to keep himself to himself and really didn't have any lasting friends. Unlike this friendship, hey buddy. Well, I, I did move to England to get away from you. Yeah, but you come to see me to record podcasts. Yeah. How long have we known each other for? Any friendship, he did seem to... <laughs> any friendship, he did. It was like a bad memory. You had to just glaze over it. Yeah, it was terrible. Any friendship he did make seemed to be short-lived. Maybe when they had chat like, um, Oh, what do, you want when, do you want, what do you want to be when you grow up, Billy? And Billy were, were, would reply... A fireman, what about you, John? And John would just reply, I want to murder women and have sex with their dead bodies. <laughs> Maybe that's why I didn't have any friends. Yeah. Um, but he'd be my best pal. <laughs> that's kind of how we met. Yeah. Um, but being the weird kids, the queer kid, John was always bullied and ridiculed um, by all the other children. But despite this, he was still excelling in school and had an IQ of 128. Mm. He won a scholarship to the Halifax Secondary School at age 11 and at school he was in the church choir probably fucked by the priests and uh, he was extremely good at maths and algebra <laughs> bra <laughs> a keen member of the boy scouts he rose the ranks to become scoutmaster by the time he was about 15 or 16 which i believe for a scoutmaster is quite young yeah because that's not like an adult position isn't so, it <clears throat> apparently he'd mentioned to others that he liked wearing the boy scout uniform presumably as it came in a position of power and dominance over others, which will be a you know a factor in later life. See, it's not unusual for some people to immediately feel at home uh, once they enter into a group with strict hierarchies and rules. Yeah. I mean, you find this with lots of people are drawn to it. It provides a structure for them, like especially if they've got volatile home lives. Uh, people find stability that they lack at home in the armed forces, the fire service, the police, things like that, and it's it kind of makes sense, but. Some people are just seeking out a position of authority and a way of having power over others. I think this is one of those instances. I no. don't think it's the stability. I think it's the power he craves. I think it is because he's from that female-dominated household where his, his mother is very overprotective of him yeah. and stuff like that. And so from what we've just talked about, he wasn't really a problem child. He was good in school. He was bullied a bit, but nothing really extraordinary that would think... Yeah, I'd say that's about right. Yeah, so to, to think um, that he would do anything, but we'd be fucking wrong. <gasps> I'm, not gonna, I'm now going to backtrack a bit on his life um, to John's first major experience with death. And this would be the death of his grandfather. He was eight years old when his grandfather passed away and it was this moment in life would go on to huge, have a huge role um, in later life. But not in the usual way of a relative passing. He was given the choice whether or not to see the body of his grandfather and the choice he would choose to do. When he saw the body at the funeral and wake, he realised something. He realised that this man, a man who he was frightened of, scared of his entire life to date, was no longer scary. 
He felt no fear coming from this corpse. Arousal, maybe. However, <laughs> this moment he started hanging out. In, from this moment, he started hanging out in graveyards, especially broken vaults containing dead children, where he would look down into the vaults and see if he could see anything. From this, he began to associate death, and especially dead bodies, with not fear like I would, but with pleasure, like James would. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what age was this? I have fucking no idea. Because it was eight probably since like eight between like I was gonna say I thought it was under ten. Yeah, so it says right there John was eight years old at the time. Yeah, but I wasn't sure if you know I'd read that. But maybe it was a typo. Yeah, yeah. Maybe you could have meant eight years old, James. Eight years old. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking the attraction to the children's vaults because of the fact he had no friends, and if he'd have found the other children intimidating, and if death conquered the fear of his grandfather, perhaps in his mind he was thinking, oh well, I was scared of my granddad. He died. I'm not scared of him. Yeah. I'm scared of the other kids or intimidated by them by social situations. Now, if I'm hanging around with dead kids, then I can have children, kids' friends. If he's never had friends, then he won't know what the friendship relationship is. That's a fantastic point. I didn't think about it like that. I just thought he was like dead bodies. But when it says that, especially children's vaults, dead children, that that could be I'm I'm thinking he's he's trying to find a way to say, oh, I'm hanging out with this child and I'm playing like football in the the tomb of this child. And it's because he doesn't have any other real children to play with. Uh, I think it was him trying to conquer his social awkwardness, but I am reading a lot into this, and it's no. I think that is a fantastic point. I mean, it's my psychology background coming out, you know, with the yeah. whole shock horror serial killer has issues yeah. thing. You know, it's a bit obvious. Um, we're going to move forward to age fifteen. John left school and started working in a local cinema. But this time, he was known um, that he had trouble having sex. I've never really had that issue, especially not age fifteen. I was busy playing football in the park uh, or playing Goldeneye on the N sixty four. I've got a girlfriend from Dundee, and it's so disgusting in Dundee that when she was 15, she probably had four kids. Yeah, she's probably forgotten. Yeah, she's misled them. Yeah, she's not told me about them yet anyway. Yeah. They're um, somewhere. <laughs> once word got around about his sexual problems, you know, as people talk about these kind of things. Yeah. He got nicknames such as <laughs> Reggie No Dick <laughs> and Can't Do Christy. Oh, fuck. Personally, I would have gone with, I, I typed that out thinking I'd have a good joke here, but I don't have one. So it wasn't that you would have gone with the nickname of dot 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 dot. No, dot. I think when I typed that, I was like, I'll have a cracking joke, but I don't have one. Let me think. Let me think of one quickly. John Christie can't have sex. Yeah. Cockless Christie. Cockless Christie. Um, can't come Christie. Can't come Christie. That's good as well. Yeah. Uh, scared of the vagina, Jonathan. <laughs> Funny fright, Johnny. <laughs> I think we could go on all day. Right. Along with these issues, he seemed like an ugly fucker too. He had a giant forehead, he was ginger, he really didn't have anything going for him. Did you know, actually, this is off script, but today is Kiss a Ginger Day. Really? Yes, you want to go find some ginger and kiss them. Mm, no, but well, I was going to say that, like, you, you've, you're saying ginger, but I've, I've never had a thing against gingers. I've always thought they were alright. Maybe not ones that murder and fuck, with, fuck no, but like, the bodies. Him, with his giant, have you seen a picture of him? No. My God, his forehead is fucking huge. You could fry eggs on it. <laughs> um, we should call him Tifal they make frying pans uh, yeah, no, I did get it it just wasn't funny just in case they, they didn't get it where are we going really yeah so he had nothing going for him Yeah. so maybe it was due to that he had become a massive hypochondriac faking illness for attention and this is likely due to his sexual problems but we can also attribute this to his female dominated home life and dominating father he seemed to crave attention and also the, um, to control those around him both of which he wouldn't have, have had or been able to do at home see Again, going off script here a bit, but... <clears throat> can't do that. You kind of think, like, it's interesting that when you've got... When you're lacking any positive reinforcement from your parents or your parent figures, that because you've not fully formed your moral compass and your sense of right and wrong, you just go off the fucking rails because mm. you're just trying to find, like, some way of getting attention. And if your way of getting attention is being really good at the trumpet or punching the dog, you're just going to do whatever comes easiest to you. So it's, you kind of do these. dogs? Some, some people do. Why would you even go there? I don't know. This Spider-Man Noodles is here, so if you hear a tapping, I've got kind of like, what kind of floor would this be? It's laminate flooring. The laminate flooring. So if you hear a tapping, it's Noodles running around. We don't have high heels on. It is the dog. I don't actually know where she is. She's not around there. She's not around near me. Well, maybe she's run away. We can only hope. We did leave the front door open, so maybe. An example of his hypercontract behaviour would be when John would have been about 17 and World War I broke out. He didn't think twice about enlisting. There was no real problems during this time, um, his time in the army. But upon discharge, he claimed he'd be involved in a mustard gas attack 
and when he was hospitalized for this attack, he claimed to have lost his sight, although no records of him losing sight exist. Now, for those of you who don't know, mustard gas isn't as delicious as it sounds. <laughs> you don't put it on hot dogs. <laughs> no. Uh, it's basically a 100-year-old chemical warfare. Not always showing effects immediately. Within 24 hours of exposure, victims would develop severe painful blistering to anywhere the gas made contact with, such as exposed skin, including the lining of the lungs and throat, causing damage to the respiratory system, resulting in bleeding and blistering internally. Now, these are essentially just chemical burns. Yeah. And the gas often penetrated clothing and can result in between first and second degree burns. However, because of the nature of being a chemical burn, they can be every bit as severe as, and disfiguring as third degree burns. And in cases uh, where more than 50% of the victim's body has been burned, now remember this gas is sprayed over battlefields. You've seen the pictures of World War One and the re- reenactments of World War One, yeah. where there's smoke lingering. That's mustard, gla- mustard gas. Yeah. And it's like a smoke bomb that goes off. Now... If you've had more than 50% burns from this, you're not going to survive it. It's, Very unlikely. Your body will shut down and you'll die. I don't know what mustard gas was. And there I do. So I don't know why he thinks he lost his sight, because you're just talking about respiratory problems. It does damage the eyes. It does damage it the would, eyes Obviously slightly. it would do. But, but I didn't find... I mean, I, I did limited research. It might, it might be the case, but it was mainly like damage to your throat, damage to your lungs. It did damage yeah. the eyes, but it wouldn't really blind you from my experience. Yes. Going on to the next bit... Um, for me, it's clear he did not lose his sight because he went to lead a kind of normal life, not someone who would have been blind. Yeah. However, also during this mustard attack, he lost function of speaking at a normal volume. This is called hysterical muteness. Hysterical mutism is a disorder of the vocal function without changing the integrity of the body, resulting in a loss of voice. And for three years, John was unable to speak above whispering volume. Many thought that this was faked, as he does have his history of hypochondria. Now, <clears throat> the thing about about hypochondria is it's banded around as saying, oh, yo, this person always thinks they're ill, they always think he's got everything that's going on. We all, we all know someone that gets a cold and is like, oh, I've got the flu yeah. and everything. But there's actually a medical condition because it's when you start looking to classifications oh, of medical No, 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 con- no. Is this called being a fucking pussy? Yeah, that, yeah. that's, that, that's mm-hmm. what it is. And I think you were diagnosed with that last year. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, well done. No. Uh, basically, Munchausen syndrome. Now, it's the type of men- mental illness uh, where a person repeatedly acts as if he or she has a physical or mental disorder when, in truth, they've caused their own symptoms. Now, it's a mental it's a mental illness associated with severe emotional difficulties. It's basically, you will pretend to have bad back, whiplash, well, that's a very modern thing to yeah. say, but you pretend to have some kind of unclassifiable condition. Yeah. Uh, it was more common back in the day when med- medicine was a bit more vague. but And then you were just portrayed to have all these symptoms and demand sympathy from people and get special treatment and they couldn't prove that you didn't have it. It's not like it's common these days, I suppose, because, I mean, there's people with with legitimate illnesses that get yeah. turfed away from the doctors, so I suppose it's not the same. But it's you need to make sure not to confuse this with Munchausen's by proxy which is the same in principle, but with the actions carried out on a third party, which is either the elderly or commonly children, where you'll have your typical doting mother looking after a sick child who she's poisoning. Oh, okay, okay. That's the same. And then the mother, and then everyone's going, oh, look how good Barbara's been. Yeah. She's so good with her daughter, even though her daughter's been ill for so long, but Barbara's fucking poisoning the daughter. Do you think why. that was like Marianne Cotton? She's like, oh, look, my child's dying. Quite Cause, possibly. Because I've poisoned her. That could quite possibly be that she was riding the grief. She yeah. was a grief whore, I yeah, think yeah. is the term. Yeah, I wish she was riding me. Yeah, well, no, I've got a girlfriend now. Yeah. Can't, be can't, can't make those jokes anymore. Yeah, can't be fucking Marianne Cotton. No. no. Also, she's been dead for quite a while. Oh, so we are covering necrophilia. Yeah, it'd be like fucking a handful of dust. Yeah. That's what it's like. What? What? <laughs> oh um, my God. <laughs> <laughs> So it is possible that John, in his everlasting quest for love and attention, did actually suffer from maybe a mild form of <laughs> James is often one. Oh, uh, right. did actually Woo. suffer from maybe a mild form of Munchausen syndrome. Yes. But now we're going to move on a bit to the 10th of May, 1920. As I mentioned this now, because this is when he would eventually move to the very famous location of 10 Willington Place. So in May. 1920, May, May, John would have been... 1920. <laughs> John 
would have been about 21 if my math is right. John actually got married to a name a lady named Ethel Waddington Simpson, who was from Sheffield. From where? Sheffield. I have some interesting facts about okay, Sheffield. You fucking do. Common for steel industry. The model of stainless steel was actually invented here. Harry Brealy creating non-rusting steel around the time of World War One, combating the issue of weapons and armaments rusting and corroding after coming into contact with the chemicals and moisture in the air. Yeah? I find that interesting. That I'm, an, was... I'm an engineer, so I find that... That was quite interesting. Yeah. I wasn't listening. I was too busy thinking of my dust joke. Yeah, that's, um, that's fine. Is that all you got to say on that? Is that that's, all that's all, Yeah, that's, that's all the facts. For now. <laughs> Their marriage would only last roughly four years. And this was mainly due to John's criminal criminal behaviours and also his sexual dysfunction. But surely, surely, she would have known about this before marrying him. People got married really quickly. But you need to take the car for a test drive. (laughs) True. Nevertheless, the marriage broke off about four years in and John moved down to London, which is about 2.5 hour train ride from Halifax. And if you're in Sheffield, 3.5 hours on a train. Why do you need to know this? You don't, but now you do. And uh, where did he move there from? I think Sheffield. Well, Sheffield is the home of the deadliest flood in UK history. Really? Yep. When the Dale Dyke Reservoir broke in 1864, it released 2 billion cubic metres of water into the ball-shaped city landscape, and 244 people were killed by this, the Great Flood of Sheffield. Oh my word. Mm. That's quite a lot of water. Yeah. And it's also the fact that the shape of Sheffield, if you look at it on like topical relief maps, it's shaped like an amphitheatre, like a ball of water. I don't think I'm ever going to do that. Well, you know, you know, you could. Even though they separated, they got back together like fucking uh, Ross and Rachel. Can, can you imagine? It's like, Ethel's like, John, did you murder murder people while we weren't together? We were on a break, Ethel! <laughs> <laughs> um, it's not quite the same. It's not quite the same. It's worse. So yeah, they got back together around about 1934. By this time, John had actually finished a few stints in prison for some crimes, crimes that we'll cover shortly. Okay. So, but I don't know how they stayed in contact. How did you stay in contact in 1930s? Well, it would have just been by letter. It would, it would, it would have been very slow, but it'd been she'd have been posting him letters in prison, and he'd have been replying to them. And no, but like when when he moved to London, she was still in Sheffield and stuff like that. How would they stay in contact? By by letter. Letter. Yeah. Well, they couldn't fucking text each other, could they? That's, that's so much better, because then you wouldn't have to worry about, oh, did they read this? Then you have the little blue ticks on WhatsApp to show they've read it. Sorry, am I thinking this too much? Well, no, you'd just be sat there for like two weeks till you got another letter back, <laughs> and you'd be like, did she get it or did she die? Yeah, exactly. Uh, right. Did I kill her or forget? What? <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll cover that later. Once they'd reunited, they would set up their wee family home in a little-known place called Ten Rillington Place. Oh. They moved to a top-floor flat um, in what was a very run-down area of London called Ladbrook Grove. But both have now been renamed because of this John Christie story. Um, Rillington Place is now Ruston Close in a much more well-known area of London now named Notting Hill. And they probably named it after that film, didn't they? Uh, did you know that Ruston Close is now called Stainless Close? Linking back to the earlier joke. So a year later, they moved downstairs. I actually did that with my friend Colin. We lived in a middle flat. And then when the flat straight upstairs became available, we moved upstairs. That's good. That's the only similarities I have with this story. I didn't kill people and... Oh, I was about to give spoilers away there. Oh, I didn't kill people and... Ha ha ha, I'm not telling you yet. Yeah, I think they moved downstairs because it was a nicer flat. We moved upstairs because we lived directly next to a pub and it was quieter upstairs. Yeah, um, the flat downstairs in this story had a living room because the entire place was a shithole. They had <laughs> they had shared toilets and it was right next to train lines, etc, etc. So no wonder he had problems with dick. <laughs> Speaking of dicks, John's limp one always took a, always took its toll on the marriage. This problem would stem from his childhood where he would feel attracted to his sisters. I stress this is from the book where it states in John's head that they would taunt him with their bodies which aroused him and then he would they would boss him around and so he would probably be sexually aroused by them and hate them at the same time. But my question is, isn't this like a, a normal relationship? Well, 
not that not I've with had not with my sister. Yeah, I'm going to say it's it's no. Is the answer to that to that? I both get aroused by girlfriends and hate them at the same time. Yeah, but that's just my girlfriend's going to listen to this. Yeah, she isn't listening to this. She's terrible. It's not going to last much longer. No. Yeah, but I must stress the sisters did nothing wrong in this situation. This is. All in his stupid puny head. In his giant forehead. His, in his giant forehead. It's like um, brain from Pinky and the Brain. Big fucking head. Like Megamind. He's Megamind. He's a Disney. A Disney with Pixar. It was animated. A computer animated one. Don't watch these things. I'm not a child. Come on. But it did go on for years. And and uh, this for this must be... Ro- oh, wrong reason. <laughs> <laughs> but it did go on for years. And this must be one reason at least he detested women and loved them at the same time. John never saw his, intim- his impotence as a problem as his own, if that makes sense. He blamed women, he blamed them for his own shortcomings. With this, he developed a hatred of women, which only grew more uh, grew more as he was more unable to perform in the sack. I mean, this is a clear justification for his actions. It moves the blame away from himself. It's also got that slight element of dissociation dissociation uh, something we've covered in the past and we're finding more and more yeah. common with it's these huge, mur- murder shitbags it's just one of those fucking things that like it's these constant acts to distance themselves from their own actions yeah so at age 19 and also during his time with Ethel John would often pay for the services of sex workers Sex workers, if you don't know, are prostitutes, but I'm not allowed to say that for some reason. Because they're fucking people. I mean, I don't refer to you as the potato man. You People have. Anymore. The prostitute isn't a... Well, we're going down a different route. He would pay for them as he, as he seemed more able to perform slash get up slash actually have sex with them rather than any woman he was in a relationship with. In my opinion, this may have been to the sex workers being hot as fuck like the ones in Amsterdam. That crossed my mind. It's like, if he's stinking and he's only pulling stinking women, yeah. this is really like bad way to phrase it, but... You can call women stinking, but you can't call a prostitute a prostitute. Well, no, because... Well, no, you can call them... The whole problem comes when you start to define them as prostitutes when they turn up as victims, when they say, such and such a woman, age 26, a prostitute from Birmingham, it's like, no, she was a fucking person. You don't say... No, it's but because... like... If a CEO of a company gets killed, you'd yeah. say, James, the CEO of this company was killed. You don't go, oh, you have to find him as a CEO. He's a no. person. <laughs> the problem is we don't have any negative things associated with CEOs. This encounters the whole phenomenon known as the less dead, where you have homeless, prostitutes, sex workers. There's people that when they become or become murdered, they're... Their actual their deaths are treated with less importance than if other people are, than a CEO. I mean, who would you think would be investigated more? The death of a of a, a sex worker or a CEO? That's well, why. You want, once you've worded it like that, James, okay, fine. Thank you. This was unscripted and very good. Hmm. So, hot as fuck like the ones in Amsterdam. Blah, blah, blah. Or mainly um, because it felt like in his younger days he was controlled, dominated and taunted by his sisters. This, for him, was a way of being in control, dominating, being the boss over a woman, which maybe helped him get sexually aroused. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, as long as you're not punching them in the face or anything <laughs> like that, if, if they don't want it. You know, I mean, it's... Yeah. Everyone likes their own things, and... Each to their own. Each to their own, and as long as you're doing something with someone who wants it done to them, then it's no fucking anyone else's business what you do, but... It's when it enters into this, when it's just these strange dynamics that you have in relationships, when it starts to affect your everyday life, that's when it kind of causes issues. Well, exactly, exactly. So I previously mentioned that John and Ethel would marry and break up due to John's criminal activities and lack of sexual prowess. So we've discussed his cock, so now let's discuss his criminal activities, because that's what we're all here for. Not floppy penises. Less of the cock, more of the crime. Less cock, more crime. In January 1921... He started working as a postman, which I find ironic because the postman always deliver, unlike John's cock. See what I did there? Well, I mean, sometimes they leave those little red slips if you're not in. <laughs> Imagine that. It's like, yeah. I can't have sex with you. Yeah. I've gone to, gone to a sex worker. You've got to go downtown before half past 12 on a Saturday to pick up your orgasm from the, sub, <laughs> from the, the something office. <laughs> and then you'd rock up and be like, can I get an orgasm please? They'd be like... Have you got any ID? <laughs> you got ID? Yeah, and you'd be like, oh fuck, I have to go back home. You'd have to get 
your ID and you go back and they'd be like, no, that's no good. It's not addressed to you. It's addressed to someone else. You need their ID. Yeah. Fucking go home. And that's why you can't pick up your dad's <laughs> orgasms. <laughs> like, like, I've left your orgasm in the garage. Yeah. <laughs> your orgasm has been left in a safe place. <laughs> <laughs> not in your vagina. Yeah. Right. So, as a posse and age of 21, 22, John would commit his first crime. That lad would end up landing him in jail. In February and March of the same year that he started work, he would go on to steal postal orders. A postal order is a financial instrument usually intended for sending money through the post. It is purchased at a post office and is payable at another post office to the named recipient, similar to a cheque but accessible to those without a bank account. Well, there you go. There you have it. Uh, Moving to April of that year... Uh, which is 1921 he was sentenced to three months in Manchester prison Strange Ways what? that's the name of the prison sorry I just thought is it? yeah it's called Strange Ways in Moss Side if you drive to Manchester from my house <clears throat> the quickest way to get there outside of rush hour so the shortest physical distance you drive past the prison really? yeah there you go wonderful news hmm. Strange Ways used to be a pub in, in Perth really? yeah if you drive to Manchester in rush hour you go through the Jewish area which is also a fun trait. Yeah. Is that one of your facts? Yeah. No, that's, that's just me just bullshitting. Not bullshitting, but talking nonsense. That's true. Do you think if someone goes like, oh, I need to get to Manchester prison, they'll go, you have to go strange ways. <laughs> My jokes are so bad. Yeah. He was sentenced to three months in Manchester prison, which by all accounts he served with no issues and was released a month early. This would be the first of a string of escalating offences that would land John Reginald Halliday Christie in prison. That's why they called him Reggie Nordic. Yeah, did you not get that? I, I just thought it was like... I didn't really pick up on the fact that that was his middle name. I didn't read the notes. This is why we do this. This is why I spend hours typing up this these notes. I, was trying I, to... I have an interesting fact about notes. Oh dear. <laughs> no. I was trying to think of an impotent joke for Halliday there. Hollow Halliday? I don't know. Hollow Halliday. Uh, see if I can Half Dick Holiday. Half Dick Holiday. Oh, yeah. it's kind of touched on the other ones. Let me try and think. I've, I've just realised now that thinking in a podcast isn't the best way to proceed. No. Because it's merely a silent action. So, yeah. Second in line for this absolute monster of a human was a charge of obtaining money under false, false pretenses using violent force. This was John's first recorded act of violence. Certainly won't be his last. In January 1923, two years after his first conviction, John was bound John was bound over and put on a 12-month probation. In the law of England and Wales and in other common law jurisdictions such as Hong Kong, binding over a binding over order and binding over for sentence or exercises of certain powers by magistrates. A person who is bound over can be required to refrain from certain activities for a stipulated period to be of good behaviour or to comply with other conditions. When abandoning a person over, the magistrate will usually stipulate a conditional financial penalty or fine to be paid if the person later breaches the binding over order. If the person breaches the conditions, he or she can be arrested and brought to court, otherwise compelled to return to court, where the magistrate may impose a stipulated financial penalty or otherwise dispose of the case. So that's um, what bound over means. Yes. Yep, if you caught that. Um, that's how... Interesting, we find these law terms. Yes. That wasn't a good one. And probation, if you don't know, is basically a period of supervision in what he does. He has to check in, make sure he's not being up to anything mischievous. So following his probation period expiring in 1924, John would go on to commit two more acts of uh, larceny. So larceny is unlawful taking of someone else's property. Now with this, I think the difference between larceny and robbery is that robbery has the element of implied threat or violence, whereas larceny is just, like, fucking nicking something. Yeah. It's just okay. taking it. Um, for these crimes, he was sentenced to a total of nine months in prison, which he served in whole. Once he completed the sentence, he moved to Battersea. Is that where the dogs are? Yeah. Battersea and, and dogs the power are. station. Is there a power station? Yeah, Battersea power station. I don't know. I just like the dogs. Those are the dogs as well. I used to work with a man, and we're name-checking now, Lewis. And when Lewis, he, I know Lewis. Yeah, no, yeah. it's a different Lewis. Basically, what <laughs> what he would do is you'd be sat there working, and you'd say, "Oh, I need the number for this supplier. Has anyone got the phone number for this supplier?" Because he's in looking it up, and then he would give you a phone number, and you would ring it up to check a price or availability of an item, 
and then you'd realise that Lewis had given you an incorrect phone number when they would pick it up and go, hello, Battersea Dogs Home. <laughs> <laughs> and that was a regular occurrence. Yeah. And then I would then in turn give him the number for Jodrell Bank, which was uh, a massive radio telescope in Cheshire. There you go. So we'd get Fun times at work. Yeah. Do you guys still work there? No, I don't work with him anymore. I, and I miss him. He's a, le- <laughs> he's a legend. Um, yeah, so he moved to Battersea and was living with a known sex worker. And in May 1929... He was charged with assaulting this sex worker. He would attack her, hit her over the head with a cricket bat. And that's just not cricket. She did not die from the attack, we've described, and it was described as a murderous attack by the magistrate. This would really be the start of a violent spree that would span the rest of his life and would end up in the death of at least eight women by his hands. Jesus. Jesus Christ. His last crime before ending the um, non-murder crimes would be to steal a car from a priest that befriended him. For this, John received three, month, three months in prison, and this would take up take us up to the beginning of 1934. Now, I thought about this, and surely that was a seriously wealthy priest to have a car in 1934. I mean, this is only 34... Gifted to him by God. Ah. Uh, yes. Did you not get that? No. No. <laughs> what I find strange about his crimes... And obviously a lot of people who end up um, being these sort of killers do tend to start with petty crimes, violent attacks. But what I found unusual, um, what I found usually, sorry, is that it starts much younger. For example, Peter Manuel's first recorded crime was 13. Yep. Napper was getting done for his air, air rifle nonsense at 16. Yeah, and he, he shot his brother younger than that. So it's, yep. you know, it's there. And um, Kemper killed his grandparents age 15, 16, if I believe. Yeah. Holmes had allegations of murdering a friend as a child. I'm fucking sure he did that. I just pushed him off the ledge. Yeah. Marianne Cotton, as soon as she had her first period, she was probably getting on the duff to poison her kids. That does make sense. Yeah. If you don't listen to our podcast, these are all people we've covered already. Before his first crime, though, um, at 22, there was no reason to believe Christie, uh, as the child he was, could go on to even becoming what he became. What do you make of that, James? Well, it's the benefit of hindsight thing. There's, I mean... Huge, isn't that hindsight? Yeah, there's, there's always the people that you can look at and go, oh, this guy's. We, we should have known. Could we not have done anything to stop this happening? But it's like, well, there's many other people that exhibit this kind of behaviour. Yeah. I mean, we all went to school with someone who was a bit odd, and that was externally odd. Yeah. And you all knew someone who was a couple of years older than you that was a bit that you didn't really speak to. And you've got to think, like, with these people, imagine the quiet ones that you don't speak to at all, how unusual they were. If, if even, I mean... Christ, in, in each of the, th- the schools and colleges that I went to, that looked like fucking three or four serial killers yeah, yeah. that I wouldn't know about. I'll work with a couple. Well, exactly. You know, it's, yeah. it's these odd people, but it's not the odd ones. It's the ones that I don't know. I don't. Th- I think with the majority of like people who go on to court to do murders and violent crimes and things like that, it's more about what they do themselves than anything else. No. Um. Yeah. That's a good point. We have, do have the benefit of hindsight. Yeah. And there's a lot of odd people that would be in and out of jail who don't go on to fucking murder eight women. Yeah. I mean, there's a thing about this petty crime because I was thinking about this. A lot of this is down to the fact that there's a difference between a lack of respect for other people's property and like what other people have. Like, you can grow up just not giving a fuck about taking things. You can be like, I want that phone. I'm taking that phone. I want yeah. this bike. I'm taking that bike. But you would never kill someone because you have a better, well, to use the phrase, moral compass than other yep. people, but you don't really give a fuck about taking someone's BMX. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, as I previously mentioned, at this point, John and Ethel had reconciled the differences and John had vowed to stop going to prison, which, in fairness, he didn't go back for quite some time. Good. So they ended up moving into the aforementioned 10 Rillington Place. So John lived a relatively quiet life for a few years, and in 1939, he enlisted into the um, the War Reserve Police, and they took him on as a special constable. Now, I've got to say that Special Constable of the War Reserve Police is the coolest fucking job title ever. Do you think so? Yeah, that's even better than Biscuit Inspector. Biscuit. <laughs> Skittles Inspector. Yeah. Obviously not looking into his past, as this certainly would have not have happened otherwise. This was the jo- a job he held for four years, and by all accounts, it was his longest job, and one he seemed to enjoy. Why are you licking your fingers like that? Sorry, so I can turn the page. That was really weird. Um, yeah, so he seemed to enjoy this job. 
And one can only guess it would have been down to the power, the uniform, and the control this position would have come with. Yeah. A bit like doggy style. <laughs> Does it come with the uniform? I've been missing out all this time. Yeah, you dress her as a dog. Oh, I thought I got a doggy, uniform. Doggy style? Fucking idiot. Then you make her bark. Um, you would take that... <laughs> he would take this power and control so seriously and maybe um, a bit far as locals would go on to call him the Himmler of Wellington Place who? Himmler Heinrich Leopold Himmler was Reichsfuhrer of the Schutzstaffel which for the non-German speakers means he was the top brass of the SS uh, and a leading member of the Nazi party of Germany Himmler was one of the most powerful men in Germany and among those most directly responsible for the Holocaust by no means an individual just doing his job, Heinrich Himmler was a real piece of shit. Yeah? Yeah. 100%. Did not know that. I've heard the name, but you don't really do, but... Mm. Yeah, he's a fucking dickhead. Um, this nickname for Christie could be considered maybe a bit of a laugh, but what was certainly no laughing matter was the abuse of power John would go on to show. Mainly referencing the fact that he would follow women around and use his job title as an excuse to do so. Later on, after his eventual conviction, notes he had taken on these women were found. Also during this time as a special constable, he had drilled a hole in his flat and was able to spy on his neighbours, which would again uh, go unnoticed for a very long time, and if found, may have given a clue to what type of man he really was. Now it's believed that this is the first recorded instance of the Neighbourhood Watch scheme. (laughs) I was like, really? Then I realised what you are getting at. In... uh, (laughs) 1943, Sir John resigned from this role. Reasons are unclear, as everything I've read has stated he actually did enjoy this job and the power and Donaldson came with it. There was one outstanding reason as to why he did quit, but we'll come to that in due course. This next bit is a bit thrown in here, but as the story goes on, you'll see why it is here. So for un- some unknown reason, John had grown to um, have a love of using gas under the cover of using it for backstreet medic medical treatment. He would use his previous role as special constable um, as a reason that he knew what he was doing and claimed that he was able to f- perform abortions. However, no um, evidence that he actually did perform any is available. It's a strange abortion, isn't it? It's like an odd thing to make up to try and impress people. I can just imagine him at the bus stop, stood next to a pregnant woman, like nodding at a bumper being like, <laughs> you know, I can take care of that for you. I can abort that. And by the time, yeah, abortions were highly illegal and contraception wasn't as good um, as it is nowadays. So taking into account his affiliation with sex workers, it's highly likely he would have performed illegal abortions at some point, much like H.H. Holmes. Yeah, I mean, that's a safe bet. Get it? Safe? No. Because H.H. Holmes, he'll kill people in the safe. Oh, right. I thought you meant, like, contraception was safe. No, it's a safe bet, Holmes. I know, I see. That's that's good. If I got that, it would have been good. I know. Keep up. Yep, so, right. So, uh, so, this is the third time I've recorded this. Um, so, this, so, that's it really for his pre-murder life. So, it's time to move a bit further forward to the year of 1948 and introduce you guys to two new characters in the story of John Christie. Introducing Timothy and Beryl Evans. Hello. Hello, I'm Timothy. Hello, I'm Beryl Evans. So, Tim and Beryl were a young couple... Um, maybe late teens, early 20s, and they were expecting their first baby. Mm. They met on a blind date and married weeks later. Timothy wasn't the smartest with an IQ of about 70, and he had little to no income, and Beryl wasn't in a better position herself. I'm not saying that to degrade anyone, just saying how it was. I need to paint the picture of, you know, paint the picture of what was to come next for this young family. They moved to 10 Rillington Place before the baby was due, and due to financial struggles, they were not in a good place. Do you mean Southern England? Yes, Southern England is yeah. fucking disgusting. The flat they moved into was the first flat John and Ethel lived in in the top floor. So, but Timothy and Beryl now lived directly above John Christie. It was Timothy's sister who'd found the flat, and she had commented while helping them move in, she turned around in the flat and John was just standing there as if he had snuck in on purpose and he was just holding a cup of tea, which she declined, but John just wouldn't leave. It wasn't until she told him Timothy was expected home soon that he made a speedy exit. 
could possibly see who was moving in. Now, I thought this, I thought it was two reasons. One of them, it could have been the tea was drugged. Oh, yeah. And he was yeah. trying to get a victim. Or the second one, he was gassed off his tits and it was just he just thought he was at home. Now, I think the first one, maybe it's a bit more. Or he was just having a wee look, having a wee look, see who was there. See if it was a single woman moving in that he could murder or something like that. Yeah. So later that year, um, the baby was born, named Geraldine. And what should be a happy occasion for any family just led to more bills, less money, and reports indicate that Beryl was a poor mother, possibly struggling with postpartum depression. Postpartum depression is a mood disorder that could affect women after childbirth. Mothers with postpartum depression experience feelings of extreme sadness, anxiety and exhaustion that may make it difficult for them to complete daily care activities for themselves or for others. I mean, with this whole thing, I think it could also point to what was diagnosed at the time as low IQ. It could have been more on the lines of like a specific learning difficulty. Oh yeah, because none of them would have been yeah, specified. Because they would have just gone, oh, it's a bit slow. Yeah. But I think the pair of them may have been, don't like you, like a special needs couple. And if they were of a lower mental age, like if they had literally, to take it by the actual definition of the term, like slow, if they had slow development, yeah. Uh, she would have struggled and her young mental age would have compounded things. I mean, it may not have been postpartum depression. It may have been that if she had a mental age of a 12-year-old, she's really going to struggle with running a house and having a baby. 100%. And this is mentioned because, um, from what I read, she was really struggling to look after Geraldine. She couldn't cook, she couldn't clean, and it was bordering on neglect. So whatever caused this, it was a truly sad situation. Yeah, 100%. So all these issues led to fights between the couples, loud, violent fights, which only got worse as Timothy liked to drink. Timothy was um, supposed to be leaving to go overseas for work, so Beryl invited a friend to live um, to live with her and help her out. Whether it was a lie or the job fell through, Timothy didn't leave, and the, forget- the friend being there ended up causing more pro- problems than it was worth. Now, do we know if the friend was male or female? It was a female. Was it a female? Now, I was thinking that because either way, it's not... Not saying either way it would be bad, but I was thinking if it was a male, he's going to think that's that guy's competing for my attention. But if it had been a female, he's going to think they're ganging up on me. Yeah. What I read, it was a, a woman named Lucy, mm-hmm. and things got so bad in the house that Timothy and Lucy moved out together. So they moved somewhere else together. I don't think they were like together. It, for those who can't see that, as in every <laughs> fucking other person apart from me... I was trying to make a noise! He was randomly thrusting his index finger into his clenched fist, <laughs> making making the sexy, sexy doodah motion. I don't think they moved out that way. No. They just moved out because things were so shit at home. And then when Lucy realised how bad Timothy was, she left that flat as well. So do you think that's what the excuse was? Oh, I'm going to work overseas... I don't think there was an affair going on or anything like that. No. I just I just got confused and then that's why I didn't add it in and now I'm half drunk, we're talking about it, I thought I'd talk about it. It kind of makes sense, I suppose. I mean, what I was getting at is like everyone's got a friend that's kind of like, that kind of pitches their oar, sticks their oar in and it's, they, they become more antagonistic than helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And then maybe she was that and you kind of think like, well, if, you know, everyone argues and things like that. I'm just, I, basically the, the part of getting that is it's Tim- not an unusual situation. Yeah. The normal people, we're not putting any blame on these folks. Do you know a couple that don't argue, James? Who? Me and you. That's true. It's because I'm scared to upset you. Plus, our, our violent sex life makes up for it. <laughs> <laughs> Things escalated so much that Timothy threatened to throw Beryl out the top floor window. And he also tried to strangle her in, in one of their fights. But despite all this, the couple fell pregnant again and Beryl saw no option but to abort. But the pills she took were unsuccessful, and also Timothy didn't seem to understand the problem that having another child would bring. He was very against losing this baby, but Beryl was desperate, and remember they were struggling to live and cope with only one child. And this desperation led Beryl to inform John Christie of her intentions to abort her unborn child. Now, was she treating John Christie as a shoulder to cry on? Was she like, yes, because they're all pals in this in this building, right? I don't speak to my neighbours. No, I don't speak to my neighbours either. Fuck them, because they're all fucking dickheads. Um, yeah. But I think yeah, they were like in a pub or they were friends with Ethel or something like that. 
Right. I mean, yeah. you know, that makes sense. Shouldn't just go down and knock, 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 who lives here? Oh, I'm John Christie. Oh, I want to abort my child. Yeah. I think they were just all kind of... She, she tried four doors by that point. Yeah. <laughs> no, no coat hangers available. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, my clothes are all hanging at the moment. Um, <laughs> November 8th of the same year, which is 1948, Timothy had come home. He'd found both Beryl and Geraldine, the baby, missing. John actually approached him and explained that during the abortion procedure and the fact that Beryl had tried other forms of treatment to induce a miscarriage, she had got septic poisoning and died. Timothy, being of low intelligence, accepted this. He also accepted the lie that John had found friends to look after Geraldine. Timothy left and he moved back to his home in South Wales. And it wasn't until his mother started properly quizzing that he reported this to the police. And also, in order to protect John, Timothy admitted giving Beryl pills that caused her death, and he said he disposed of the body down a sewer. Once no body was found, Timothy then told the police of John's role. The police immediately searched 10 Rillington Place, and they found a laundry room lodged shut. They were handed a piece of metal to help open the door, which was handed over to them to none by none other. Then Ethel Christie. John's wife. John's wife. Oh, Ethel. Ethel, Ethel, Ethel. In this room, they found a lot of wood covering stuff, so they moved the wood about, and they, and they found a tied-up um, tablecloth, and un, upon untying this roll, they discovered the body of Beryl, and further inspection of the room led to the discovery of baby Geraldine under a piece of wood. Fucking hell. Both had been strangled to death, with baby Geraldine still with a man's necktie. Remember this necktie for episode two, around her neck. That, that's a very formal way to dress a baby. <laughs> <laughs> so now the trial of the deaths. For some reason, Timothy would end up confessing again, and it's suspected that Timothy feared he would have been beaten by the police if he did not end up confessing to the deaths of his wife and daughter. I mean, these days we know a lot about coerced confessions, police brutality, and also people with lower IQs and learning difficulties often fall victim to this. If you look at how he accepted all the excuses that Christie gave him and he moved back home to South Wales and just said, oh, well, this has happened. And you can imagine his mum saying, "What? what no, no, what's happened? Explain this. And he's like, well, yeah, I got... I got my wife pregnant and then she she had an abortion and then she died i gave her some pills and then it, it just doesn't it well, this whole story sounds of someone of like learning difficulties thinking yeah. on their feet and coming up with unrealistic answers and the police who were presumably very focused on tying cases up yeah were just accepting this and but in a case of a, a dead Wife and child or family members is usually the the one that's yeah, living. Yeah, the husband, the, the husband's a number, a number one excuse. That you, you wouldn't if if you had a family of three, and the wife and the child turned up dead, you wouldn't start questioning the next door neighbour. Exactly. You know, exactly. It's, it's, I, I do I do get it, but also, I think if this happened today, they would have approached the investigation in a different manner. More than likely, yeah. more than likely. But he had confessed twice. Well, yeah, yeah. Once the police charged him, he would yet again change his mind and blame John. By this time, he had changed his story too much, too much, that he was basically ignored. That's the thing. It's like the boy who cried wolf, isn't it? He's basically yes. he's he's been going backwards and forwards all this time. That when he's actually saying no, now I'm telling the truth. They're like, yeah, yeah whatever. Yeah, shut up, dickhead. It is important to note that he was being charged with the murder of um, baby Geraldine, not his actual wife. This is because if it was for his wife Beryl. The defence could have constructed a defence based on provocation, which would have resulted in a manslaughter charge instead of a murder charge. Now, this is an important point, as under English law, sentencing for manslaughter is at the judge's discretion. However, uh, murder carries a mandatory life sentence uh, of imprisonment. Basically, it's like if, if you are found guilty of manslaughter, the judge can carry out a charge yeah. that he deems fit, whereas murder, bosh, has to be what it says in the book. So they were basically taking him into the cleaners. Yes. Because they found the bodies in the laundry room. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Don't 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 make jokes like that about this, please. Thank Sorry. You, you made a... <laughs> <laughs> so they were going full force into this, and they were wanting the maximum penalty for, for Timothy, which at the time was death. 
Right. The trial took place at the Old Bailey, and that's important to remember for episode two, but I will bring that back up. Where, where did the trial take place? Old Bailey. I have an interesting fact about the Old oh, Bailey. Well, I was very surprised. In 2019, it is set to be replaced by the New Bailey, which will be a fully immersive VR experience which will allow members of the jury to cast their judgments via in-app purchases and Amazon Prime. Alexa, take him to the cells. <laughs> That's not true. Hmm, I didn't know that one. Yeah, well, Alexa doesn't know that one, if you heard that. I've got Alexa in the room, which I think James forgot about. I did forget about that when yeah. I wrote that. Um, she doesn't know what he's talking about. So, although other witnesses and testimonies were taken and heard, I will mention three of the main ones, as they are the interesting ones. Okay. That's what we're here for. Yes. First up, we have Ethel. Her initial statement to police uh, said that she l- used the laundry room uh, that the bodies were found in daily which is weird because it was a while before the bodies were found. So surely she would have noticed the smell, you know, noticed the fact there's a fucking body in the room or something, a huge roll of material with someone inside it, you know. But then when she stood up in court, she changed the story to say that she rarely visited the room. I mean, I'm not sure why she did this. Maybe it was a genuine mistake. Maybe she was under pressure. You don't know if people, if these police statements are taking the very, very first thing that comes to the head as being gospel. We've all been in a situation where someone goes, you, what did you do last week? And you said, uh, nothing. And then when you thought about it, you went, oh shit, I went bowling. Yeah, exactly. And then so, and then they go, oh, well you said you did nothing. Yeah. You know, is it the same as that? But I mean, it could have been a genuine mistake. It wasn't picked up on at the time and it's no real bearing on the case. It's just a note of interest, really. If anybody's wondering why James read that, because I tried it four times, I couldn't get the words out right. So he's done that for me, so thank you very much. Do you want to read the second bit? Second up was a carpenter, not Jesus, <laughs> who gave the wood to John. Now, that isn't a euphemism. He didn't give John an <laughs> erection. This is just, I mean, he literally gave John wood. Again, not a euphemism. There was discrepancies in the timeline uh, at which he was at the flats. Now, these discrepancies seem to fit in with what the prosecution wanted, and the timesheet for his work that carried out in the property went missing. I just think this is the police desperate to pin it on someone. Yeah. And like, the, the, you know, you, you pick up a, t- a worker from 80 years ago and the, they're not going to be recording the work, are they? There's also, that's the only thing that went missing from this case. Just the timesheet. So did he go missing from the case's evidence? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I thought it meant the carpenter had lost it himself. They no, said, no, 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 no. They'd said to the carpenter, where's your timesheet from the 10th of October last year? And he'd gone, I'm fucking No, home. I think from what I read, that's, uh, the police lost it. Ah, all oh, right. Well, again, it's just, they play fast and loose, aren't they, with the case? Yeah. Uh, again, this had no real bearing on the case, but it's, it's a note of interest. I mean, I'm no expert on trials, but it does sound a bit messy, doesn't it? It sounds like a bloody mess. <laughs> Back to me? If you want. We'll see what happens. It's your episode. Yeah. The final witness, and the main witness, some might say, was none other than John Christie. This is super fucked up, basically. Obviously, this was strange, as Timothy had been accusing him of the murders. Now he was to testify against Timothy in a trial where, if found guilty, Timothy would be hanged. John, when he took the stand, and I don't like saying this because this guy killed a lot of people, he's a bad man, but he was brilliant in what he did. He was very well presented, he took his time with very calculated and precise answers, and this was in contrast to Timothy, who had chopped and changed his story, and this painted John in a very good light. This could simply be the comparison between someone who's potentially got learning difficulties and someone with an above average IQ. And also a psychopath. Well, well, the, well there's, there's that as well. But I mean, if you interview two people off the street and one of them is, I think the technical term is thick as pig shit, and the yes. other one's like a bank manager, yes. you're going to get a different calibre of response. And it's literally what's happening here. And unfortunately for Timothy, when you're being literally being judged on what you're saying, it's not ideal. Exactly. He also made um, the jury very aware that he served in the war and also had uh, injuries from the war, which would be his blindness blindness and his low voice, if they were real. So that painted him in a really good light. He came across as such a nice man who would, who just appeared that he just wanted to help as much as possible with any inquiry that was made. Even when the defense of Timothy, Timothy brought up John's criminal past, it had been 17 years since he had last been arrested, and that just painted him in the light of someone who had been bad, 
but had made every attempt to change its ways. So that backfired. That's interesting because even though it would have been a legitimate adult, it's not like he's like 29 or anything like that. And, you know, you say 10 years ago he was a kid. In a similar thing, like he's saying, oh, that was 17 years ago. That was, I was, I was wrong and I've changed my ways since then. Yeah. Similar thing, when they quizzed George W. Bush about uh, a drink driving offence he had, he said, oh, I was young and I was stupid. And they said, uh, I'm sorry, but you were 40. Yeah, like you weren't young and stupid. You're a fucking full-grown adult. Yeah, and it just shows how people can view things and change things and put spin on things. And well, people can change at any, any time in life. Well, I think if you if you've had, I'm certainly a lot different than I was ten years ago. Yeah, I mean we had this conversation. That's more that's more to do with growing up. I think your morals and your I think your integrity is still the same. Yeah, I've always had good morals and integrity. Yeah, I mean apart from lying about things like that. Yeah, you have. <laughs> Certainly different now. I'm bald. Through choice. Not yeah. like me. and fucking victim of the cause. Five days bald and I got a bird. Gonna cut that bit out. <laughs> At the end of the trial, and I guess in what would be called the judge's closing statement, before the jury go make their decision, the judge would speak in a manner which appeared that he, in his mind, had already convicted Timothy making every effort to remind the jury that he had potentially killed a baby. He apparently ignored statements that would have potentially caused reasonable doubt. And he reminded them of John's 17 years clear of criminal criminal activities. Mm. It took only 40 minutes um, to make the jury's decision, and the jury found Timothy Evans guilty of the murder of his own baby daughter, Geraldine. When announced... When this was announced... And he was sentenced to his death. John Reginald Halliday Christie cried in court. And in less than eight weeks since being charged with the murder, Timothy was hanged on 9th of March 1950 in what was to be one of the saddest events and trials I have ever read about. I mean, it's terrible. It's basically, if you take it at face value, it is someone with learning difficulties who's being railroaded into a false confession and then executed. Yeah. It's terrible. It's horrific. And also with the fact that it happened in 1950, it's not happened in 1822. This is within our, our parents' yes. lifetimes. This is two, three generations ago? I don't know. Two and a half. Two, two and a half generations five. ago. It's like, it's like, it is relatively recent. It's, it's about 70 years ago, but it's fucking, it's bad. When John finally admits to killing Beryl, he never does to Geraldine. We'll find out in the second episode. It opens a whole can of worms that we could do entire episodes on. Yeah. But we don't. We just tell the story of John Christie. So although I've gone into these murders first, I've done this as their longest to tell, mainly due to the trial that led to Timothy's death. These murders of Beryl and Geraldine were in fact third and fourth in a murder spree that saw John kill a minimum of eight women. All of which we'll get into on episode two. Yeah, so that's it for um, episode one. Thank you very much for listening. James, have you got anything you want to add? No, just uh, thanks for listening. I think this has been... It's, it's been a, a really interesting episode. It's been a long one. It's been a long one, yeah. I mean, and both me and Chad, we're not used to presenting long ones to anyone. No, uh, I need a nap. It's a dick joke. Uh, basically... <laughs> <laughs> Just basically, the whole story is fucked up, and it's this. You can clearly tell the guy's so manipulative, and like he's managed to manipulate the whole legal system. You can clearly tell at this time that you don't want to give him credit, but it was almost like he was the legal system wasn't prepared for people like him. Yeah, to manipulate, it was like he was just like really did a number on the whole legal system. Uh, I just think I'm really just excited to hear more about what happens in episode two. I think so. It's a good one. I've, I've done the research. You've probably not read it yet, but it's, it's yeah, good. It's, it's, it's going to be good. I mean, I hope you'll join it for us in a fortnight, as usual, every Wednesday. And in the meantime, if you're desperate for some updates on us, please check us out on social media. We're on uh, facebook.com slash messpodcast, twitter.com slash mess underscore podcast, and on the old Instagram, where we are most active, it's a bloody mess. Yeah, get in touch. We try and reply to everyone. You know on Facebook where it says, these people reply. We are good at replying. Yeah, I mean, we will, I mean, to be honest, we've both got notifications on our phones. Only two of us. not a massive team of interns or anything like that. It's the fucking two of us. If you send us a message, one of us will reply. 
you send us a Facebook comment and MySpace comment, you know, we're, we're, fucking hell, MySpace, Christ. A yeah, time... did you just say MySpace? <laughs> <laughs> fucking time travel back to 2006. I'm in a vortex. No, I meant to say Instagram, but that shows how much. Yeah, if you get a message on social media, it probably won't be from me because I'm fucking still trying to log into MySpace. <laughs> Bebo. Christ. I mean, we're active. If you like what you're listening to, send us a message. Like us on Facebook, like us on Instagram. It helps us out. It helps us get more more fans, more followers, and makes us know that we're still doing what you like to hear. Also, we got drunk one night and decided to like um, start up a Facebook yes. listeners group. A listeners group. Now, the whole thing about the listeners group was we weren't trying to promote the podcast. It was more for, we realised that the whole point of the podcast is we want to invite you into our drunken conversations about serial killers and things nonsense. like that. And nonsense and true crime. Talking about sex in my girlfriend's dusty vagina. Yeah, you know, that's yeah. that's one of the things. And uh, She's okay with me saying this, by the way. Well, you know, for now. I text her to ask. We'll wait, we'll wait, you know, for future episodes and we'll listen back to this. Anyway, basically what I'm saying is we've made this Facebook group. It's a bloody mess listeners group. Just to talk about stuff that's away from the, from the podcast. It's We've got funny memes... We talk about films we've seen, generally scary films. And, yeah, you know. we're not going to be pushing the podcast. We're just trying to commit, create a community. We want to create something bigger than ourselves. And I'm hoping that one day it'll be a cult. <laughs> we'll cover cults one day as well. Yeah. I and mean, we're also trying to, we're going to branch out from serial killers. That's all we've done at the moment. We will eventually branch out into actual true crimes. James wants to do cults and stuff like that. We've kind of realised that a lot of the podcasts are like, they label themselves true crime, and true crime is just a byword for serial killers. But when you realise that, if you if you look into the true crime in the macabre, there's cults, there's kidnappings, there's abductions, there's probably not the paranormal side of things, although we may touch on people who believe there are paranormal reasons for things like that in, in their actions. But there's a lot out there that we can cover, and I don't want to just bind ourselves to people that have a body count. Yeah. So, yeah, is that us? That, that's us. I mean, find us on the social medias and get yeah. in touch. And just a wee teaser for you. Episode 2, we talk about another six murders, and we go into a little bit of detail about the different types of necrophilia oh I'm excited but until then see you later motherfuckers bye you've been listening to another great podcast from the Fair City Podcast Network a group dedicated to connecting and developing podcasts check out fcpod.net for more great podcasts and content